You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lakamon Garan was a member of the British Indian Army during World War II. The trench he was defending came under attack by Japanese troops with grenades. Garong caught and returned two of them, but a third took off his arm. Whereas the average person would be down for the count, Garong spent the next four hours killing Japanese soldiers one at a time with his rifle. When reinforcements finally arrived, 31 enemy soldiers lay dead, and Garong complained about how the stump of his arm was attracting flies and annoying him. The human body can be a frail and fragile thing. We can be taken out by a small clump of substances already in our system. Then there are some bodies that seem to be made out of pure testicular fortitude. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You know you're in for an interesting biography when the subject has a knife named after him. Such is the case with Jim Bowie. Bowie was a 19th century American pioneer and frontier legend. The world-famous Bowie knife, made by his brother, was a nine-inch hunting knife that he carried with him at all times, just in case. With Bowie, these just-in-case situations tended to come up a lot. The Bowie knife gained widespread fame after the notorious sandbar fight of September 1827. Bowie attended to a duel on a sandbar outside of Natchez, Mississippi. When neither duelist managed to hit one another with their gunshots, two spectators, Messrs. Cooney and Crane, who were also at odds, decided that it would be as good a time as any to settle their scores. After all, it would be a shame to get all dressed up for a duel and not see anyone get killed. Crane fired a shot at Cooney, but accidentally hit Bowie in the hip, sending him to the ground. Bowie got to his feet, drew his knife, and charged at Crane. Panicked at the frontier hell beast coming for him, the shooter emptied his gun at Bowie, hitting him three more times. He then bashed the still-charging Bowie on the head with the gun itself, which broke it. This finally took Bowie to his knees, momentarily. One of Crane's supporters, a man named Wright, shot at Bowie while he was on the ground, but missed. So he drew his sword cane and plunged it into Bowie's chest. And that's when Bowie got mad. As Wright was fumbling to pull his sword out of Bowie's sternum, Bowie grabbed hold of him and pulled Wright down onto his Bowie knife. Wright died instantly, but Bowie still had the problem of having a sword sticking out of his chest, which made him an easy target, and as such, he was shot and stabbed again by another member of Crane's group. Climbing to his feet, Two brothers in attendance fired pistols at him, hitting him once in the arm. Bowie was able to draw the sword out of his chest and used it to cut off part of one of the brothers' arms 
while dodging a bullet from the other. The brothers fled, which was probably the only smart move they made that day. Bowie wasn't quite the T-1000 that he seemed that day, though, eventually dying in sickbed during the Battle of the Alamo. Charles de Gaulle was the leader of the French Resistance in World War II, founder of the French Fifth Republic, and one of the most well-known presidents in the history of France, if not the best well-known. Oh, and there were 31 recorded attempts to assassinate him. Despite the ever-present threat of death, de Gaulle remained a man of the people, constantly appearing in public, even though that made him a ready target for more attempts. Not only did Gaulle survive these attempts, he barely seemed to notice that people were trying to kill him. During World War II, he went to England after the Nazis invaded France and governed from there. Upon his return, he escaped gunfire several times. The first time was on board a frigate called the Marseille when a soldier aimed a rifle at him, but was taken down by another soldier. The second was only a short time later during a celebration at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris to celebrate the end of the war. There was a rapid gunfire in the crowd, but de Gaulle was not only calm under pressure, he kept shaking hands with people in attendance. The most notorious of his assassination attempts was in 1962, when a group of people fired 140 bullets into the president's car as he was traveling to the Orly airport. The group shot out three of the tires and killed two bodyguards, but the car actually saved de Gaulle's life. De Gaulle and his wife ducked down, and the driver was able to accelerate out of a front-wheel skid thanks to the car's suspension system. The group was trying to kill him because they thought de Gaulle had betrayed France by accepting Algerian independence. They were captured and would be the last people to be killed in France by firing squad. This instance was the basis for the book and subsequent films, The Day of the Jackal. Undoubtedly, though, it wasn't just the car that saved his life. He also had a great driver that handled the car successfully. The driver saved his life during other assassination attempts as well. A year earlier, de Gaulle had been traveling to his country house with his wife when his Citrion came alongside a roadside bomb. De Gaulle's chauffeur, a man called Francis Moreau, barreled straight through the flames as everything exploded around them. De Gaulle's order to his chauffeur as all this was happening? Faster. Though I assume he said it in French. It wasn't only native dissidents that were out to get de Gaulle. The CIA was said to have been heavily involved in trying to overthrow de Gaulle for a number of reasons ranging from their involvement in Algerian dependence, the presence of oil in Algeria, and because de Gaulle was against the Vietnam War. They decided to go old school. Like, really old school. They tried to use a poison ring. The CIA was approached by French dissidents who wanted their help in applying poison to a ring that an old soldier would wear to a military event. After shaking his hand, de Gaulle would fall down dead and the killer would simply walk away. De Gaulle avoided this fairly goofy assassination plan by a mile because the military event was cancelled. Finally, some assassins figured out they were going to have to get serious about the job and went straight for overkill. Several cars full of snipers with submachine guns, grenades, and Molotov cocktails 
attacked de Gaulle's convoy. Twelve snipers bombarded the car with bullets. This time it seemed de Gaulle was doomed to once again barely notice. His aide begged him repeatedly to lay down on the seat of the car, and he finally agreed to lean forward slightly to humor the man. When the barrage was over, he brushed his shoulders off and continued the trip. Death finally got de Gaulle's full attention in 1970, when he died at his country home while watching TV at age 79. Richard Blass was a Canadian boxer and criminal active in the 1960s. He was nicknamed Le Chat, French for the Cat, because of his luck in evading death after surviving at least three assassination attempts and a police shootout, and for escaping custody twice. Blass reportedly hated the Italian Mafia, to the point of ordering his men to attack anyone who even looked like they might be with the mob. Organized crime families don't take kindly to policies like that for some reason. A hit was ordered, but the poor goons who had to carry it out soon found that Bloss was a tough nut to crack. First, they tried to gun him down at a bar where he was getting drunk. As they opened fire, the unimpressed Bloss dodged the hail of bullets and ran out without a scratch. Two weeks later, the mob decided to give it another go. They tracked Bloss down to a motel, waited till he went to sleep, and lit the whole place on fire. Bloss walked away from the inferno, casually, one assumes. A month later, presumably hoping that a few weeks of inactivity would be enough time for Bloss to forget how to dodge bullets, a second firearm-fueled ambush left Bloss with a head wound where a bullet had grazed him and two bullets lodged in his back. And with that, Bloss was finally dead. No, he wasn't. After a quick trip to the hospital, where he gained respect by refusing to name the culprits to the police, Bloss was back on the streets, now equipped with his new nickname, and an even stronger burning desire to bring down the mob. A dozen Dillinger's worth of bank robberies and a Sopranos-style gruesome murder scene later, Bloss was cornered by police in a small cottage. They had completely surrounded him, outnumbered, and outgunned him. So naturally, he attacked them. The ensuing gunfight finally finished him off, and they only had to shoot him 20 times to do it. You don't have to be a soldier, politician, or gangster to have people try to kill you. Michael Malloy, a homeless alcoholic from County Donegal who lived in New York City in the 20s and 30s, was known as Mike the Durable, Iron Mike, the Rasputin of the Bronx. The events that led to Malloy's death began in January 1933. Five men who were acquainted with him, Tony Marino, Joseph Red Murphy, Francis Pasqua, Hershey Green, and Daniel Kreisberg, plotted to take out three life insurance policies on Malloy and then let him drink himself to death. Headlines would later call them the Murder Trust. Pasqua proposed to Marino, the bartender of Malloy's favorite speakeasy, that he take out insurance on Malloy, and Pasqua would take care of the rest. That wouldn't be Marino's first time at the dance. A year prior, Marino had befriended a homeless woman and convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy, naming him as the beneficiary. One frigid night, he got her blind drunk, stripped her of her clothing, doused her sheets and mattress with ice water, and left the bed next to an open window. 
the medical examiner listed the cause of death as pneumonia, and Marino collected the insurance money without incident. Marino figured Mike Malloy, who looked about 60 even though he was in his 40s, would go easily. They agreed to the plan. Marino began pouring Malloy all the drinks he wanted on the house. Malloy, accustomed to getting the bums rush because of his lack of funds, was so thrilled that he eagerly signed a petition to help Marino get elected for local office. What he was actually signing was an insurance policy with Metropolitan Life and two more with Prudential. The gang even provided Malloy with a crash pad in the back of the bar to sleep it off. They stood to gain $3,500, about $65,000 today, if Malloy died an accidental death. The thought was that with unlimited credit, it wouldn't take long for Malloy to drink himself to death. Although Malloy drank for the majority of every waking day, it didn't kill him. Getting more proactive, the murder trust began to serve him antifreeze. Still, Malloy would drink until he passed out, wake up, and come back for more. Then Malloy's glass would be filled with turpentine, then horse liniment, and finally rat poison. Nevertheless, Malloy seemed no worse than usual. The group then tried feeding him old, raw oysters soaked in wood alcohol. Malloy didn't even go blind, as most people would from ingesting methanol. Then they served him a sandwich of spoiled sardines mixed with poison and carpet tacks. Malloy wolfed it down and asked for another the following day. At this point, the murder trust decided it was unlikely that anything Malloy ingested was going to kill him, so they decided to freeze him to death. Being homeless, this would be a likely way to go. On a night when the temperature reached negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 26 Celsius, Malloy drank until he passed out, was carried to a park, dumped in a snowbank, and had five gallons of water poured onto him. But like the eponymous feline in the song The Cat Came Back, Malloy was back at the bar the following day for his free drinks. It was time to ramp things up even more. They bribed taxi driver Harry Green with $150 to hit Malloy with his car. The murder trust got him drunk and propped him up as Green revved up the taxi. At the last second, they were to jump aside and let the cab hit Malloy. Malloy, though drunk, avoided the first two efforts to run him down. On the third attempt, according to Smithsonian Magazine, Green raced toward Malloy at 50 miles per hour. With every second, Malloy loomed larger through the windshield. Two thuds, one loud and one soft, the body against the hood, and then dropping to the ground. For good measure, Green backed up over him. The gang was confident that Malloy was dead, but a passing car scared them from the scene before they could confirm. For the next five days, the trust couldn't locate Malloy in any hospital or morgue. Sure enough, on the sixth day, the door to Marino's speakeasy swung open and in limped a battered, bandaged Michael Malloy, looking only slightly worse for wear. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. The gang had finally had enough. On February 22nd, after Malloy passed out for the night, they took him to Murphy's room, put a hose in his mouth, connected it to the gas supply, and turned it on. They left it on for an hour, just to be certain. This actually killed Michael Malloy. He was pronounced dead of pneumonia by a doctor who had been bribed, and quickly buried as cheaply as possible. Eventually, police heard rumors of Rasputin Mike in speakeasies all over town, and upon learning that Michael Malloy had died recently, had the body exhumed and forensically examined. The five men were put on trial. Green went to prison, and the other four members of the murder trust were executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing. It only took one try each. The man Michael Malloy got his nickname from is probably the best-known case of hard-to-kill. Grigory Rasputin, the Mad Monk, became a close advisor to the Romanov royal family of Russia after helping to improve the health of their hemophiliac son, Alexei. It's likely that all he did was stop doctors from giving Alexei the latest wonder drug, aspirin, a blood thinner that is the last thing a hemophiliac needs. Tsarina Alexandra listened to Rasputin in everything and encouraged her husband to do the same. Before long, their extended family grew tired of Rasputin's meddling and powerful influence, and some of them decided to put an end to it. On the night of December 17, 1916, Great Duke Dmitry Romanov, Prince Felix Yusupov, Member of Parliament Vladimir Purishkevich, and Dr. Lazaret invited Rasputin to the Yusupov Palace under the pretense of meeting a potential patient, Yusupov's wife Irina. Upon arrival, Rasputin was taken to a dining room in the basement. He was told that Irina had some guests and invited to rest and have tea while they waited for the guests to leave. Rasputin was offered pastries and wine, which he initially refused, 
This threw Yusupov into a panic. He told his co-conspirators, who were waiting in another room off the stairs, the animal is not eating or drinking. When he returned, however, Rasputin had opened the wine and begun to drink. After a while, he may have started to feel something, because he asked for tea instead. He then stood, walked around the room, and asked Yusupov to play the guitar and sing. This went on for two hours. When Yusupov checked in with the conspirators again, he was pale. He said that Rasputin had drunk the poisoned wine and snacked on the poisoned pastries with no ill effect. The nerves of the co-conspirators were beginning to fray, and Yusupov had had enough. He took a revolver, and while Rasputin was distracted by an ornate cross, Yusupov shot him in the back. Rasputin gave a cry and fell to the floor. Yusupov lifted the body by the shirt and shook it, and then dropped it again. He then noticed the left eye starting to open, and then the right. Suddenly, Rasputin leapt from the floor with a devil's look in his eyes, and with a wild cry attacked Yusupov. Yusupov struggled with him for a moment and then broke free, and Rasputin fell to the floor again. The prince ran, calling for another revolver. When the conspirators entered, Rasputin was crawling up the stairs. He made it outside and began to run through the snow, crying, Yusupov, I will tell everything to the Tsarina. In a panic, Perishkevich fired three shots with a revolver and struck Rasputin once in the back, then again in the head. Again, Rasputin fell. Yusupov began to beat Rasputin with a rubber club. Perishkevich pulled him off the body. They then took the body back into the house, only to discover that Rasputin was still alive. He wheezed with every breath, but was able to look at them through one eye. Rasputin was wrapped in a cloth and taken by car to the Neva River and dumped in. That, at least, is the version that Yusupov gave in a book that he wrote from his exile in Paris in the 1920s. Some historians throw doubt on a few points of the version. The reason the wine didn't poison him is that it was too weak. The poison in the pastry wouldn't affect Rasputin because he never ate meat or sweets. And it was not Purushkevich who shot Rasputin, but Great Duke Dmitri. They claim that Purushkevich and Yusupov were covering for the Great Duke. It's said that when the body was retrieved from the river two days later, it appeared as if Rasputin had tried to claw his way out of the ice. He had died from drowning after being unsuccessfully poisoned, shot, and beaten. He was buried in secret to avoid his body being desecrated. Bonus fact? Some versions of Rasputin's murder include him being castrated, and there are even museums and private collectors who claim that they have the detached member. All of these have been proved to be fakes. Usually, it's the appendage of some type of animal, and in one case, an entire sea cucumber. If you've been listening to the show for the past few weeks, which of course I hope you have, or following our social media, you would have heard about our Patreon special offer. I am elated to say that that special offer of a custom-made keychain and two bonus monthly mini-episodes increased our membership by 80%, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome our newest 
Patreon patrons, Sean, Dan, Amber, and Troy. They join our loyal cadre of Nathan, Seth, Michael, Council of Geeks, and Adam Baum in helping me to cover the out-of-pocket expenses that go along with making a podcast, and for which I will always be grateful. And there are non-financial ways that you can help support the podcast. The best one is by sharing it with your friends and family. You can usually do that right from your podcast listening app. Try swiping up on the screen and see if your program doesn't offer you share options. Or you can retweet and share things from Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter.com slash brainonfactspod. The third great way to support your favorite podcast, you know, whether it's mine or someone else's, is to leave reviews. And I would like to share a really great one that we got recently, entitled, Oh, She's Got Segways. I wish I could adequately explain how much I love this podcast. I found it very recently and just finished today, and it has been an absolute pleasure binging on a year's worth of these shows. The topics range from goats to unfortunate kings and beyond, and no matter how interested or disinterested I think I am in a topic, Moxie delivers it in such a perfect fashion as to keep any and every episode worth a listen. Thank you, kind stranger. That's exactly what I'm going for here. Not every unkillable person is the target of malice. Frein Selik, born in Croatia in 1929, has a reputation as the world's luckiest man, or unluckiest depending on how you look at it. Selik led a relatively unremarkable life as a music teacher until a train journey in 1962 set off an unbelievable chain of events. While riding a train from Sarajevo to Dobrinik, a freak accident saw his train catapulted into a river. Seventeen passengers were killed, but Selleck was able to swim to shore with only a broken arm and hypothermia. The following year, Selleck was on a plane out of Zagreb when a door became detached and the plane crashed. This time, 19 people lost their lives, while the superhuman Selleck was reportedly found in a haystack near the crash site. He awoke in hospital, apparently rattled, but in good condition. Next on the list of modes of transport that clearly think Franz Zelik did them a great personal wrong, we have the bus. In 1966, the unfortunate man was in another fatal accident when the bus he was riding plunged into a river. Apparently, rivers also have it out for him. There were four casualties this time, but again, he got out unscathed. A couple of comparatively uneventful years passed until 1970, when Selleck reported that his car's fuel tank exploded on the motorway. He barely managed to escape with his seemingly charmed life. Three years after that, another freak car accident when a malfunctioning fuel pump sprayed petrol over his car's engine, which caught fire and spread to the rest of the car. Fast forward a few decades to 1995, and Selleck gets hit by a bus. A year later, a truck comes barreling toward his Skoda as he drove around a country road. This episode ends with Salak leaping free in time to watch his car explode. There came a stage where I was lucky to have any friends at all, he once said. Many stopped seeing me as I was bad luck. That might have changed in the mid-2000s, though. As if making up for the horrible deal Lady Luck was trying to give him, Selik won the Croatian lottery. 
His jackpot was worth about $100,000. With this, he bought a luxurious home, only to have a change of heart and sell it a few years later. He returned to a humble life with his fifth wife. All I need at my age is my Katerina. Money would not change anything. When she arrived, I knew then that I really did have a charmed, blessed life. Whatever happened along the way, Frayn's story has a happy ending. He spent the last of his winnings on a hip operation he needed, surprising he didn't need more, and on a shrine to the Virgin Mary in thanks for his good fortune. I could probably do a whole episode on sole survivors of plane crashes, but there's one in particular that I want to share. Julianne Kopke had no idea what was in store for her when she boarded Lonza Flight 508 on Christmas Eve in 1971. The 17-year-old who had gotten her high school diploma only the day before was traveling with her mother across Peru to visit her father who was working in the Amazonian rainforest. Both of her parents were German zoologists who had moved to Peru to study wildlife. The flight was meant to be an hour long, when suddenly the plane was caught in the midst of a massive thunderstorm. When a lightning bolt struck the motor, the plane broke into pieces. What really happened is something that you can only try to reconstruct in your mind, says Kopke. Still strapped to her seat, Kopke fell 10,000 feet into the middle of the Peruvian rainforest. She had a broken collarbone and a deep gash on her leg, but somehow was still alive. When she awoke the next morning, a concussion and shock only allowed for her to process basic facts. She had survived a plane crash. She couldn't see well out of one eye. She slipped back into unconsciousness, and it would take half a day for her to be able to get up. She set out to find her mother, but was unsuccessful. She was feeling understandably hopeless, but then remembered some survival advice her father had given her. If you see water, follow it. There will be civilization downstream. Sometimes she walked, sometimes she swam. On the fourth day of her trek, she came across three fellow passengers still strapped to their seats, all dead. One of the passengers had a bag of candy. This would serve as her only food for the rest of her days in the forest. Kopke sometimes heard and saw rescue planes and helicopters above, but couldn't get their attention. The plane crash had prompted the biggest search in Peru's history, but the dense forest meant that the aircraft couldn't spot wreckage, let alone a single person. After some time, she didn't hear them anymore, and she knew that she was on her own. On her ninth day in the forest, Kopke came across a hut and sheltered there, where she recalls thinking that she would probably die alone in the jungle. Then she heard voices they belonged to three Peruvian men who sometimes used the hut. The first man I saw seemed like an angel, she said. The men didn't feel quite the same way. They were frightened by her appearance, and at first thought she might be a water spirit called a Yemen Jabut. Still, they let her stay there for the night, and the following day took her by boat to a local hospital located in a nearby town. After she was treated for her injuries, Kopke was reunited with her father. She also helped authorities locate the plane, and over the course of a few days they were able to find and identify the bodies, including that of her mother. In total, Kopke was alone and wounded in the jungle 
for 11 days. She went on to become a scientist studying in Peru like her parents. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Let me leave you with one more person with above-average hit points. Gabriel Garcia Moreno served as president of Ecuador in the mid-19th century, codifying Catholicism as the official religion, requiring that anyone who ran or voted for office be Catholic. This was awesome for Catholics, kind of a drag for everyone else. So Moreno had to go. As he left a cathedral, Marino was brutally attacked by a group of assassins. Armed with machetes, the men chopped at the president's neck and head and severed his left arm and right hand. But Marino stayed on his feet. Undeterred, his attackers shot him six times in the chest. He'd been slashed a total of 14 times before he finally fell to the ground. Even then, he was alive enough to write, God does not die on the ground in his own blood. Now that is totally metal. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And thanks again for all of my Patreon supporters. I literally could not do this thing that I love to do so well without your help. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.